0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, especially your stories. You're the hour in Our American Stories. Send your stories to us at ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll help you record them. And this next story comes from a listener named Karen cutler Drechtra, who listens to us on WHBY, 1150 AM in Appleton, Wisconsin. Here's Karen on her father, Jim.
1: There are rare moments of happiness in a hospital, especially in the room of an 89-year-old man with dementia. But even there, once in a while, you are blessed with a golden memory that almost makes the experience worth it. I need to preface what happened by letting you in on a long-running family joke. When my sister and I were young, We'd always ask dad what his favorite song was, even though we knew what the answer would be. The Kentucky Waltz, he would always reply. My father grew up in southern Illinois, near the Kentucky border, during the 1930s through the early 1950s, and his primary source of entertainment was the grand old Opry on the radio. <laughs> late 1950s, my father moved to northeastern Wisconsin and married my mother, but brought his love for country music with him. So, for most of our young lives, we grew up listening to country music. However, the Kentucky Waltz was never heard on any of the country music stations here. There's no such thing as the Kentucky Waltz, we'd tease him. You must be thinking of the Tennessee Waltz. And then all of us would start singing at the top of our lungs. I was waltzing with my darling to the Tennessee Waltz. However, Dad kept insisting there was such a song as the Kentucky Waltz, but he couldn't remember the words or the melody. Since this was the early 1970s, before Google and the World Wide Web, Dad would ask various musicians listen to country music radio stations and look at every single song selection on jukeboxes but never came across the kentucky waltz fast forward 45 years both my sister and i had long forgotten about teasing dad on the existence of this song he had had a few mini strokes and according to various scans and tests his brain had shrunk we finally got him into an assisted living facility but he couldn't understand why he was there, and fought with everyone almost the entire time. Since my sister and her family lived in Las Vegas, I was the closest living sibling, so I ended up being the person who was called when he was acting up. I didn't mind at the beginning, but it started to be four to five times a week, and I didn't want to resent my father for something he couldn't help, but I was beginning to. However... After a few months of living there, his health declined to the point of him being in the hospital, and my sister flew in to be by his bedside. Now, sitting next to my incoherent father, as he was babbling nonsense about people's names I didn't recognize, I had my nose buried deep into my cell phone, playing some game to distract me on how heartbroken I was sitting there listening to him. I did finally recognize a couple of the names he whispered, of people he knew growing up in southern Illinois, though they were people I had never met and had long since passed away. At this particular moment, it was just Dad and me in the room. My sister had left to take a break and get us some coffee downstairs. Out of nowhere, he started to sing. We were waltzing last night in Kentucky beneath the beautiful harvest moon. My head snapped to attention. I thought, what is he singing? I never heard this song before. Suddenly, all those memories of car rides, which ended with us laughing at dad about the song that didn't exist, came flooding into my brain. I grabbed my phone and went directly to YouTube. I entered the Kentucky Waltz in search and there it was staring me in the face. A video of the Osborne brothers singing the Kentucky Waltz. I turned up the volume and Dad's eyes became more focused and moist. He started singing at the top of his lungs all the words to the song right along with the music. He didn't miss one word after 60 years of not hearing it. My sister came through the door and asked what's going on? I can hear dad singing all the way down the hall. Wait, dad's singing? I quickly filled her in on what happened and I immediately replayed the video which of course dad then started singing again. We both started to cry and laugh at the same time. Dad looked at both of us and said, Why are you guys laughing so hard? I told you this was my favorite song. We had a great afternoon with him. He was able to hold a conversation. We laughed. We cried. We created the last happy memory I have of him. He made somewhat of a turnaround and was able to be released to a memory center at a nursing home. Dad died three months later, but when I'm missing him or just feeling lonely for family, the gift of that song helps chase those sad feelings away. I've played the song so many times, I also know know all the words by heart and sing at the top of my lungs. We were waltzing last night in Kentucky Beneath the beautiful Ah, this moon. And I was a boy that was lucky.
2: But it all indeed
0: soon And you've been listening to Karen Cutler Drechtra and her story about her father in a song. And Karen is a listener at WHBY 1150 AM in Appleton, Wisconsin. Her story, her father's story, and the story of a song, one of our best so far, here on Our American Story. We continue here with our american stories and today we have our better health at lower cost series brought to us by the stetson family office and faith brings us the story
3: what would you say if you found out exercising made you smarter well it does and by hearing the story of naperville central high school we'll find out how Paul Zantarski was the Phys Ed department chair at Naperville for 26 years and a PE teacher for 40. He decided to do a little experiment. Working alongside other great minds, they started the Learning Readiness program, which made them do physical education a little differently. Here's Paul Zantarski.
4: We had a, a class that we called Learning Readiness PE and all of our students take daily P.E., all four years of high school, which is unusual in the country, unfortunately. And all we did was put a, put students who were struggling in a class that was a like a, a class designed to help them get better. So we had what was called a reading intervention class, and in math, we put them in introduction to algebra because they weren't ready as ninth graders to take algebra, and we just put them in a fairly intense phys ed class prior to to attending those academic classes.
3: Naperville Central High School has been utilizing heart rate monitors during PE in order to ensure students are working in their targeted heart rate zones and maximizing the benefits of PE. Since then, major strides have been made by the school and district with the ultimate goal of running a PE program that truly benefits their students' overall health, wellness, and learning readiness. So what was happening?
4: We had done a um, what we called a data retreat at our school, and we tried to identify what could we say about the kids who were struggling in our school system. And for us, in our particular high school, we identified the low readers as being the ones who struggle. If you struggle with reading, then you're gonna struggle in school. So we created an intervention called Literacy, and um, that was designed to improve reading ability so every day they went to the class they did 20 minutes of sustained silent reading if you want to be a good reader you have to practice at it but you have to practice at what they call the decile reading level not so it doesn't do any good to read comic books for example they have to read you know read books that are at their at their ability level and um, then they were given Test-taking techniques and organization techniques, and and they learned how to how to study better. And we found some success with it. But in our eight-period day, our ninth graders who took that class didn't get an opportunity to take an elective. They had their other five core subjects: um, English, math, social studies, uh, foreign language, and science. They had physical education in their scheduled and they also had a full period of lunch. Well, their literacy class took up their elective. So we had some parents who complained, said we saw the benefit for our students but our students didn't get a chance to take an elective. So my principal came to me and said would you consider running a zero hour PE class and uh, for those kids involved in the um, in the reading program and I said yes I would do that, but my caveat would be that I want then the first period of the day to be uh, the literacy class. And he said, we can schedule it that way. So people involved, the reading teachers involved in the program said, we have to collect data to see if it's working, because if it isn't working, I'll go back to the neuroscientists. And by this time, Dr. Rady had come to visit our program. And so, you know, we developed a relationship with him. And I said, if it's not working, we'll go back to neuroscientists and see how we can tweak it. Well, when we collected data using a nationwide reading test at the time, we used the Nelson-Denny Reading Test, the students who were in the PE class prior to um, prior to the the class improved a half a year more in a semester than the students who were just getting off the bus and going to first period of literacy. Naperville began to
3: gain the interest of psychiatrists and doctors all around the country. Here's Dr. John Rady, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School.
5: I uh, became aware of a school in Naperville, Illinois, uh, in about 2002, when they were on Frontline, uh, the PBS show, uh, because we were beginning to really worry about the obesity crisis in adults and in children. They uh, just had canvassed their student population and found that of the 19,000 kids in their school district, uh, only 3% of them were overweight, whereas the national average was 33%. This was remarkable, but even more remarkable, and especially for me, was that uh, a year or two before uh, this report came out, they had, 99% of their kids had taken the TIMSS test, the International Science and Math Test, which every country takes every three years. And they found that uh, they could take it as a country uh, the U.S. usually comes in nineteenth or twentieth. I think that's a right run where they scored this past time that they took it. And it's to, it, as I say, it's to evaluate where countries stack up in terms of science and math education. Well, they took it and uh, they came in number one in the world in science and number six in math. This got me on an airplane to go to explore what the heck was happening in Naperville. So this became a life changer for me, as I say, because I said, this is amazing that we could change the whole education system, the whole uh, effect on uh, students as they uh, go through school by really focusing uh, for 45 minutes a day on
3: fitness. How did this all get started?
5: We started the program in, in
4: 2005, and then I retired in 2010. So from 2005 through 2011, we found we found the benefit. We kept data all the way through, um, and then a, you know after I retired, then they stopped collecting data because there wasn't anybody pushing for it anymore. And um, so for you know for me. Uh, I started to learn the benefits of of, uh, of exercise and fitness and how it affected uh, the brain. I got a chance to work with another neuroscientist, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Chuck Hillman, and at the time he was at the University of Illinois, he's now at Northeastern uh, University in Boston. And uh, he had done brain scans on, on kids, and he was working with kids, and if you... If you do an internet search, uh, Chuck Hillman brain scans, you'll see a two-headed slide. Um, and each one of those scans represents a composite of 20 students. And on the left-hand side, it's students sitting down a test, taking a test. And prior to taking the test, they sat quietly. On the right-hand side, it's the same students taking the same test, only they proceeded with just a 20-minute walk. And you see more brain activity. The brain is all lit up. and so. When I retired, then I became what I called an educational consultant, and that's what I do. I get get asked at times to go and visit districts or or make presentations at different locations, sometimes parents' groups, sometimes a school district. We as phys ed teachers never had this in our training, and and still to this day, I think the, the kids coming out as phys ed teachers don't understand the benefit they bring to the learning process.
0: And you've been listening to a hell of a story from Naperville, Illinois, and my goodness, only 3% of an entire student population were overweight. And we know what we're looking at down the road, folks, in terms of diabetes, in terms of all the problems that being obese will cause as it relates to health down the road. And here's a school system, a single school system using, well, some, it seems, simple methodologies and data-driven, too, to drive spectacular results, enough to get a Harvard- medical school psychiatrist staff member to fly into small town America to figure out what the heck is going on. And when we come back more of this terrific story and as always our better health at lower cost series is brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson family office. By the way, take out, take a listen to our our hour on the life of Dr. Ken Cooper, who was a great NASA scientist invented modern day aerobics and runs one of the great clinics in America. He happens to be my doctor, I'm lucky. And, uh, well, just take a listen to that story. And again, that one was brought to us by the Stetson Family Office as well. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, the story of Naperville, when we continue here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories and return to the story of Naperville Central High School. The school has been deemed both the smartest and the fittest in the country. And we've been listening to their former Phys Ed Department Chair, Paul Zantarsky, and Harvard Medical Psychiatrist, John Rady. We left off with Paul talking about the importance of P.E. Let's return to faith.
3: We all know that P.E. doesn't always serve its purpose. It's become less important, and not so much about teaching, but about playing games.
4: Phys ed teachers need to do things the correct way. Uh, at the elementary level, uh phys ed teachers are using the best, the next best game, as I call it, rather than teaching movement patterns and, and uh, proper body positions and things like that, which is important. We have forgotten, as, as phys ed teachers, that we teach in a place called a gymnasium, and that's where we taught gymnastics, and a lot of teachers at the elementary level don't teach gymnastics because they're not comfortable doing that anymore, and that's that's unfortunate. And the public um, doesn't appreciate what we do because you know they see us playing kickball outside with the kids all the time. Well, kickball is fine on a one or two day basis in a, in a school year, just you know, just for fun and breaking it up, but. You know, if a a student hasn't learned how to place that foot properly, and kick properly, and and run properly, and you know those kinds of things, uh, it's no good to just be playing games. And games are good for those advanced movements. Don't get me wrong, but at the same time, you have to teach the basics first. So, sports skills in the phys ed world is not as important anymore, and so we need to go back to teaching about health and wellness and nutrition and sleep and fitness and and teach people the, the fitness concepts we now know that about above the age of 26 about 5% of the adult population uses team sports to stay active so we need to teach things like you know yoga and pilates and weightlifting and cardiovascular exercise and training heart rate zones and and things like that, so that people can stay healthy for a lifetime our you know our economy is going to be crushed by the cost of healthcare. I mean, I go to schools now and I see fifth graders who are two hundred and fifty pounds sometimes and and already have type 2 diabetes in fifth grade and they're just going to be a drain on society they're never going to be a successful citizen won't um, you have diabetes it's like a uh, like a slot machine for a drug company. If you have diabetes, you're probably going to have depression. You're probably going to have high cholesterol, you know, you're probably going to have heart disease. So, so it's one more pill after another, after another, that's, that's um, di- are prescribed for you because of, of your illnesses. And that's what's sad.
3: Because people don't know how to exercise or have good physical education, going to the gym doesn't make much of a difference.
4: Uh, I see guys, and they want to do these bicep curls, bicep curls. And, and I want to say to them, well, the only thing you're doing, going to do is lift 12-ounce can of beer to, to your lips when you bend your arms, you know, uh, how much lifting are you going to do? But again, everybody wants, all these guys want big biceps, and it's the fault of us phys ed teachers because we didn't do things right years ago. And we're still not doing things right, unfortunately.
3: But what does this all mean for the rest of us? Why is teaching physical education so important? This isn't just about good grades, is it? Dr. John Rady wrote the book Spark in 2013, which discusses the mind-body connection and how aerobic exercise physically remodels our brains for peak performance.
5: One of the things that uh, I I emphasize is that there is this tremendous uptick in research by schools all over the world, uh, who medical schools, schools of uh, kinesiology, psychology, uh, biology, uh, looking at the incredible effects of, of physical exercise on our brains. And it stands to reason as when we move, when we exercise, we are using more brain cells than in any other human activity we are since our brains were constructed to make us the best movers so much of our brain is used and when we do that we make our brains tougher we make our brains work better but we make them stronger so we think of the brain as a muscle so the more we use it the stronger it becomes, and the better it works for us.
3: The benefits of exercise are innumerable. It's used as a treatment for depression, anxiety, weight loss, and sharpening of the brain. Our biggest problem is that people know that exercise is good for you. But still don't do it.
5: We're constructed. If you could take to the benefit make us, the best movers of exercise put it in a pill you would be the most powerful person in the world so much of our brain is used and when we do that we the problem
4: is is make our brain and i keep telling people this exercises work and so we we tend not to want to you know our bodies tend not to work even though that's how our brains developed is our ancestors moved and Hunted and and we're constantly on the move, and that's how our brains, you know, evolves. And yet, we don't know that. And the sad part is, tougher. we make our brains work. Most school administrators don't understand how the better brain functions, so they think that they spend. If a student spends more time in a the class, they're going they're going to learn better. So what we're, what we see around the country is they're dropping courses like physical education and music and art to help science, technology, engineering, and math uh, that everybody's pushing, and yet uh, if the brain isn't prepared to learn through movement, it's, you know, sitting in a desk isn't going
5: to to help the matter.
3: It's better to start later than never.
5: People are always worried about hurting themselves, and yes, you have to do movement carefully, and thoughtfully, and in balance, and train for moving. Um, But it's better to uh, wear out than to rust, because so much of us, so many of us uh, out there are rusting away from disuse, not only our muscles and our joints but this has an impact on our brain rusting. And this is what we see with the, the cognitive uh, decline that we're fighting in the onset of Alzheimer's disease.
3: How will this all affect us in the long run? We'll close with Paul Zintarski.
4: We don't want to burden our children with being, being of poor health but that happens so many times. I mean, you know, I have friends that are in nursing homes, and I go to you know go to visit nursing homes, and you just see all these people in wheelchairs sitting in in hallways, you know, with this uh, terrible look in their eyes, <laughs> like there's no life, and, and you know, just kind of waiting for the death bell to ring, and it, it's terrible, right? Not we have not learned how to live longer well. That's that's the difference.
3: I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories.
0: And great job on that, Faith, and learning to live longer well. That was, again, Paul Zentarski and the work he did at Naperville Central High School in Illinois. My goodness, 3% or overweight in the entire school. That's almost not believable. I love what Harvard Medical Psychiatrist John Rady said towards the end there. Better to... Wear out than to rust. Many of us are wearing out from disuse and not just our joints, but our brains. And of course, all this exercise can help prevent, well, things like early onset of Alzheimer's. And great work as always by faith, great storytelling. And thanks again to Paul Zantarsky and John Rady, their stories in the quest for better health at lower cost. And all of this brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson family office and thanks to Chuck Stetson for his tirelessness in pursuing this subject and all of the work he and his staff and team put into this. Their stories, all of them, here on Our American Stories. And we return to Our American Stories, and today we bring you the story of Henny Jewelers, a fourth-generation family-owned jewelry shop with a heck of a story in Pittsburgh, PA.
2: The story of Henny Jewelers began in 1887 by my great-grandfather, Rudolph Joseph Henny, who was a watchmaker by trade, and he decided to start his own business. So he bought a building in the east end of Pittsburgh with a $5 down payment, and he and his wife moved upstairs and then operated the business down below, and there they serviced railroad pocket watches for the railroad right around the corner, and began to sell jewelry, um, engagement rings, wedding bands, and did just about any type of service that could be done. He continued to operate that business into the early 1900s. His son, his only child, was born above the store in 1899. Rudolph Gerard, Henny, or Jerry, was the next generation to come into the family business. And he carried that business through the Great Depression, which we actually have the original accounting ledger from the 1920s and 1930s. The Great Depression saw Henny Jewelers' sales drop 72% from 1926 to 1934.
6: Despite the toll that the Great Depression took on the Henny's, they still managed to make it through with a little thriftiness and ingenuity.
2: They were true entrepreneurs because back then, while sales were declining, They actually tripled their marketing budget. I think also being able to have the store fully paid for so they really didn't have rent. And at that time, uh, they still may have been living above the store, at least one of the generations was. uh, So they were able to get through the Great Depression and, and carry on the business. Eventually, the business was passed on to my father. So during the 1960s the area where the store was located in the east end of pittsburgh they did some urban development that changed things which significantly uh, declined the commercial viability of the area and we saw crime go up and my dad finally in the 1970s 1978 decided to move the store it was a very difficult move because They had been in the previous location for 91 years. It was the store where my grandfather, his father was actually born. And it was a real change, uh, a real risk for him. But it turned out to be uh, a great move. And he continued to operate that uh, to the 1990s. I came in the business in 1992. My dad was very sincere when he mentioned to me about the opportunity to come into the business, there was no pressure. That he really felt it was a business that he enjoyed, but every one of us should choose something that we really enjoy and love. I had my own desire to come into the business. I saw my dad. uh, I saw what he got to do. I started working in the business when I was 12, and I would come in and run the vacuum and clean toilets and wrap packages. We used to actually make our own bows in the basement. There was a little machine that you would twist these bows up. And I I would sit there for hours and make bows. And you know, frankly, uh, my dad is one of my heroes. And if I could be like him, that would be a a very successful life. Uh, So I had a desire to come in and do what he did. When I joined the business, we were doing less than 2% bridal engagement rings and wedding bands. And now it accounts for about 35% of our business. And frankly, it's some of the most exciting things that we get to do. It's really fun for me to get to meet these young couples who are planning the next stage of life, planning to get engaged and then get married. And some of them I've gotten to see through it. Now in my 26 years in the business, I now get to see uh, the children who are graduated from high school and college when I sold the original engagement ring and wedding band years ago. My Christian faith is uh, very important to me. This goes all the way back to my great-grandfather. In fact, right now on the credenza behind me is a little trowel that was given to my great-grandfather in recognition of his help to lay the cornerstone in the new church that was built down the street, Sacred Heart Catholic Church, which coincidentally is uh, where my sister was married and where my grandparents, they were the very first couple married in that church faith has played an important part in how we operate the business and what we do here it was discouraging to see young couples getting engaged and getting married and and seeing the love that they have for each other and then encountering them five or seven or ten years later when they're coming back to sell the engagement ring and wedding bands because things didn't work out uh, so well marriage and relationships can be challenging and sometimes People don't prepare uh, as well as they might need to. As my dad said often, uh, he and my mother counsel young couples through their church as they prepare for marriage. And he was getting the impression that many of the young couples today were more interested in preparing for the wedding ceremony than for the relationship. And so we developed a program, we call the To Have and To Hold program, where we give a financial incentive to couples to seek pre-marriage counseling through their synagogue, their church, through any type of uh, counselor. And we will give them a discount on their wedding bands if they show us that they have received pre-marriage counseling. In addition to that, we do give out a book to every couple who comes in to look at an engagement ring. It is uh, written by Gary Chapman, who is pretty famous for a book he wrote called The Five Love Languages. And this book is The Things I Wish I Knew Before I Got Married and it's a great practical guide to help prepare young couples for getting married and we have given it to thousands of couples now and some of them have come back and told us what an impact it's had and how helpful it was. I know that many have taken it and read it and given it to their friends to read as they prepare for marriage. I generally tell people that I have never had an innovative thought, that I'm really good at paying attention to what other people do and picking out what uh, has been successful in trying to emulate it, uh, maybe tweak it. Uh, but that was one that we did come up with on our own through a leaders collaborative that I went through about 11 years ago. And at the end of this leaders collaborative, they asked everyone to come up with a breakthrough goal where they in their position, wherever they are, could have an impact on the world. and. I thought to myself, what in the world is a a little dinky retail jeweler gonna do to have an impact on the world? How can I really impact our community? How can a jewelry store really do something that would have a meaningful impact? At that exact time, a very close friend of mine from college um, was going through a real challenge in his marriage. And that's what gave me the inspiration to see if there was a way that we could use our unique position Uh, in dealing with couples as they're preparing for marriage to help them better prepare for marriage because it is neat when you are selling an engagement ring you tend to hear their story you get connected to these couples and you get to know them in a way that most people in a retail environment don't get to know people and we felt that through that we might be able to speak into their lives and give them some resources that could be beneficial and helpful. Uh, and so that's our desire, our hope is that there are marriages that are slightly better than they would have been if they hadn't read the book or done the premarriage counseling, and maybe we're really even making an impact that there are marriages that are saved that wouldn't have been because of the resources that we've given them. I have four boys; the oldest is 16, down to 10, and they have all worked in the business in minor ways, and. Uh, one of them has come in and actually uh, gets behind the sales counter and is really quite good at it. We will see if any of them do choose to come in the business. Just like my father said to me, I intend to say to them that it is uh, an opportunity, a means to make a living and provide for your family if you're interested. It's frankly one that I enjoy tremendously. Uh, but there is no obligation to come into this business. There is no tradition that needs to be carried on. And they should pursue their dreams and do whatever Uh, they feel called to and to do something that they really enjoy. That's certainly one of the things that I I feel strongly about and I talk to our team, we have a a staff of about 30 here, that we spend too much time at work. In fact, we oftentimes spend more time at work than we do with our families. So we should find something that we really enjoy. And I like to say, you should enjoy what you do, you should uh, like what you do 60 to 80 percent of the time. I'm well aware that there are bad days and not all things go smoothly and easily. There are times that you're not going to love what happened that day. But for the most part, you should be excited to go to work and enjoy what you're doing.
0: And thanks to Robbie for his work on that piece. And by the way, Robbie and his fiancee, well, they're about to get married. And they went to Henny's to buy their wedding bands. And John looked after them. He sat down with them. He walked them through their options. He even had a ring cleaned and resized. He didn't have to do that. It's just what he does. And by the way, if you have a story about a local-owned business, send it to us at ouramericannetwork.org because these business owners, they're the lifeblood of a town. I mean, imagine he said he had 30 on staff, and 30 on staff means he's probably taking care of 100-plus people if you count their family, spouses, kids, etc. And this is what small business owners do. They're the lifeblood of a town, and it's very much what Tocqueville observed about this country, the French Social scientist who came here in the 19th century. And what he observed was, well, something unique to America. All these associations, all these churches, all these small businesses, Americans just gathered together and solving problems and taking care of business. Indeed, he believed that the lifeblood of a democracy, the lifeblood of a democracy, were these small associations. And so thanks to John Henney for doing all the things he does, a family serving Pittsburgh for many, many, many decades. John Henney's story, his family's story, a Pittsburgh story here on Our American Story. Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And our next story is about a comedian whose jokes came so fast that when you laughed at one, you probably were going to miss the next one.
6: Here's Greg Hengler. Anybody can repeat a Rodney Dangerfield joke, but nobody could tell one like the man himself. That's because his humor was drawn from a life so hard that the only way to survive it was to laugh at it, and we all do. In fact. Rodney is one of the very few comedians whose act connects and appeals to every generation. This is his story.
7: You know, people say to me, How did you get a name like Rodney Dangerfield? I'll tell you what happened. Hi. I saw your ad in the paper. I want to improve my personality. Good luck. What's your name? I'm Jack Roy. Jack Roy? You got two first names. Your name is your biggest problem. This is like a comeback for me in show business. I was in show business years ago and I quit. And I did even idea how well I was doing at the time I quit. I was the only one who knew I quit. What's the name? Rodney Dangerfield rodney dangerfield with a name like
8: rodney dangerfield you have to either be really funny or you have to be an idiot and you were really funny as rodney dangerfield
9: if you look at his image and his material and the way he dressed the way he conducted himself the name rodney dangerfield just fit
7: suppose i use the name i don't like it can i bring it back okay just do me one favor while you're using the name don't give it
10: a bad name this persona is what made this man
11: special. What a crowd! What a crowd! Rodney was totally unique. He was a different kind of performer. There was never one like that before. And there's never been one like that
5: since.
12: He was funny, and he was every man. And Rodney Dangerfield, if he was anything else, was authentic.
10: Rodney's jokes were all true. They were all based on his his real perception of himself. I tell you, it's not easy being me. And this whole thing, it's not easy being me. It wasn't. He, he, he always felt someone was trying to take advantage of him. I tell you
7: can't get help today.
10: More going to betray him, or you know that he'd been somehow wronged. But then that just was something from his childhood He's so wronged by his parents that they can never overcome it.
6: Tonight, well, I don't believe this. It.
8: Rodney
12: Dangerfield, comedian, actor. The man who from coast to coast Gets no respect This
13: is your life
6: Rodney Dangerfield was born Jacob Cohen On November 22, 1921 in Long Island, New York He was the son of Jewish parents Vaudeville performer Phil And housewife Dorothy Here's comedian Argus Hamilton Rodney's second wife Joan Dangerfield And literary agent Chris Calhoun I told my old
7: man, never took me to the zoo He said, if they want you, they'll come and get
8: you He was born a really poor, rejected kid His father, uh, who adopted the stage name Roy Was on a comedy team in Vaudeville and always on the road
14: Rodney's dad was absent from his life Which was um, a real source of, of heartache for Rodney
13: his father saw him twice a year for about two 30-minute visits.
7: What a childhood I had. My mother never breastfed me. She told me she liked me as a friend. <laughs> His mother, a beautiful Hungarian Jew,
8: couldn't stand him, didn't even tend
7: him, hardly even babysat him.
14: He told me she never gave him a hug or a kiss or, or even a compliment.
7: Last week I looked up my family tree, I found out I'm the sack
14: he was really left to just go play in the backyard and um, there'd be half a sandwich on the the porch and he had to fend for himself. Even though his mother didn't show him much affection, it didn't stop him from being a, a loyal, devoted son. He worked at a newsstand before school, when he was in grade school. And he took every job he could get his hands on and, and was actually the breadwinner of the family. He
13: was starved for affection, attention. He tried to do good things. He worked very hard to get
7: good grades, and he presented his mother with a report card. She wouldn't even look at it. She just says, give me that sign. And she says, you know what, you got to do it. Well, who are you trying to get good marks for if your mother don't want to look at it?
6: When Rodney was 12... His mother Dorothy moved them to Kew Gardens in Queens. Here's Chris Calhoun.
13: His aunt Pearlie and uh, Rodney's older sister were going to the movies, and he begged them to go. Aunt Pearlie said, "Well, if you scrub up, you can go." So he ran up the stairs and washed his face and hands. And he came back down, and they were halfway down the block, laughing and running away from him. And he screamed out, please, I want to go, please, I want to go, and they never came back.
14: He actually got his first laugh at five years old. He was still hungry after dinner and told his mother that he'd like some more food. And she said, well, you've had sufficient, and he said, I didn't even have any fish. Sadly, everybody laughed, but he noticed that that mood lifted and he never forgot that and kind of spent the rest of his life trying to get that good feeling back.
7: He was very unhappy, so you try to think of comedy relief. So you try to think of some way to write a funny joke or get a funny thought and just to break up the, uh, how unhappy you are, I guess.
14: He told me many times that when he would get laughter from the audience, that was the closest warm feeling he could compare to love.
6: At the age of 15, Rodney Dangerfield began writing jokes. When he turned 18, he took his father's stage name, Phil Roy, and started his comedic career under the stage name Jack Roy in hopes of becoming a professional comedian like his idols W.C. Fields, Groucho Marx, and Laurel and Hardy
13: all started when he was working as a young man in a club in Brooklyn called the Polish Falcon. And when the comic got off stage uh, one evening, he got up and did a few jokes.
7: Boy, what a record. You don't know what you go through in show business. you kids' in show business. At the time, I was a kid and doing what the
12: kids do. I lacked maturity. I had lacked an image.
6: Here's comedian Harry Basil. When
12: Rodney started in his show business uh, as Jack Roy, he didn't know what he was doing yet. He sang on stage. He even used props for a while. He didn't know what type of a comedian he wanted to be.
11: As Jack Roy, he was really doing impressions. Humphrey Bogot and, and Cary Grant and Jimmy Durante. And they weren't that good, really. And
0: what a story. It makes so much sense now that we're listening to it, all of us, right? And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the life story of Rodney Dangerfield, here This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Rodney Dangerfield singing in the movie Easy Money. Let's return to where we left off. It's the early 1940s, and Rodney, known at the time as Jack Roy, is struggling
6: as a young New York comedian. Here's the former producer for The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, Stan Irwin, former William Morris agent Ed Summerfield, and comedians Tommy Smothers and Rob Schneider. Jack Roy, was
9: also known as Mad Jack. Mad Jack comes from his attitude. He was angry on the street all the time.
11: Yeah, I said, what are you so mad about? Ah, you don't know what I go through, Eddie. Every day it's something else. This agent and this girl and this club owner, can't they see I'm funny? He said, I'll tell you, I appealed to everyone who could do me absolutely no good.
9: He was an
13: angry man,
9: but a, a sweet angry man well i never saw him happy he was always complaining he was always complaining about this or about that and it sounded like a
13: routine but it, it wasn't a routine
6: rodney suffered depression his whole life he wasn't kidding he really he was uh, a depressed
7: guy he was down i mean this afternoon i was in a bar they told me to get out they wanted to start the happy hour in 1949
6: rodney is 28 having been on the comedy circuit for over 10 years and with nothing to show for his efforts. But things started to look up for Rodney when he met a beautiful jazz singer named Joyce Indig. The two decided to get married, quit show business, and settle down.
8: Rodney went out and uh, became a aluminum siding salesman in the 1950s. And a lot of comedians made day money selling aluminum siding across the river in New Jersey. And Dangerfield was an excellent aluminum siding salesman.
14: He believed that um, making the customer like you was an important part of getting the sale. And so he, he kind of, you know used his humor to help him get his foot in the door.
12: I live in a town called Bergenfield, New Jersey, and my best friend, Mark Levine, his parents claim to fame was that Rodney Dangerfield did the aluminum siding on their house. And he told Murray and Gloria Levine, I'm going to be a stand-up, and he told him a joke about an egg. Sex with me, that's ridiculous. My wife makes love to me, there's always a reason for it. One night she used me to time an egg. So he tells them that joke and gets in his car and drives away, and Mrs. Levine goes, Murray, he'll never make it. When he was
13: out of show business working this square gig as a aluminum siding salesman and living in the suburbs and going on the road and taking orders, lining up contractors... He continued to write jokes. And he kept a duffel bag in his bedroom at home.
8: And he would just write funny jokes, funny jokes, funny jokes for 11 years. He filled up this duffel bag with funny jokes.
7: On well, the other night, I felt like having a few drinks. I went over to the bartender and said, surprise me. He showed me a naked picture of my wife. Joyce kept
11: her promise. She quit the business. Rodney, Jack Roy, still had the bug in him to perform.
6: Rodney and Joyce would have two children, Brian and Melanie. But Rodney's inability to leave show business was breaking up his marriage.
7: I got divorced and uh, I didn't, life sort of caved in on me and I saw I'll go back in show business. You can't find perfection in relationships, so I can find it in my work.
13: He had filled, as he said, a bag of jokes that he had been writing. So he had uh, a wealth of material. So even though he had not been on the stage, he had been working, working on his act and working on his jokes. In
6: 1962, at a failed stint in comedy, a failed marriage, and no money in the bank, Rodney returned to the comic circuit at the age of 40. But these struggles, along with his maturity, made Rodney a better comedian. His stage name, on the other hand, Jack Roy, was lacking.
14: He went to a club that he had worked in the past, and um, and the club owner always ran the names of the acts in the Friday paper, The Mirror, and Rodney wasn't sure he'd do very well. So instead of using the name Jack Roy, he told the club owner, George McFanna to just make up a name.
7: So he made up a name. Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney Dangerfield? See, you just heard it. You're
10: starting to say it. Listen to me. Take the name.
14: He was surprised that the name was Rodney Dangerfield. Um, But it went so well that night, uh, he killed. And he thought maybe, maybe that's the name for him. So it stuck and kind of became his lucky charm.
6: The name change helped. But the angry guy routine also needed a makeover first thing he
12: came up with is with me nothing goes right. I'll tell you with me you know nothing works out. And then he would write jokes accordingly to that.
7: Every time I leave my house my wife tells me to call her in case something goes right.
6: Rodney's new routine was working earning him bookings and more prestigious venues. But at the age of 44 Rodney knew he needed more exposure. There was no better venue at the time than the Ed Sullivan show. But unknowns had to audition, so Rodney auditioned in 1966, and he killed it. But Sullivan proved to be harder to win over.
7: Sullivan never called after that. I said, "See, what do you have to do, man? No, I tell you, I don't get a break with nothing. Rodney Dangerfield.
6: After three long weeks, Rodney got the call to appear on The Ed Sullivan Show on March 5th, 1967.
7: I'll tell you, my apartment, nothing works. I got a radio, I can hardly hear it. I got a television set, I can't make out the picture. But when my wife opens her mouth, perfect reception. (laughs) With my wife, we got nothing but arguments. And I can never get a word in. The other night I told her, I said, there's another side to that argument. She said, I know, my mother's coming right over.
6: Here's owner of Rodney's comedy club, Dangerfields, Anthony Bavacquia.
9: The Ed Sullivan show, uh, if you did well, if the ovation was uh, good, uh, better than normal, Ed Sullivan would call you back to take a bow. And that's it! So his ovation was good. Uh, so as the uh, ovation is starting to dip a little bit, uh, Ed Sullivan would be getting ready to bring on the next act. Rodney would, uh, from behind the curtain, would peek his head out. The uh, applause... It went sky high, and Ed Sullivan uh, encore. Take a take a bow, Rodney. So Rodney would come out and take another bow, and then he would run back behind us, uh, the curtain. Ed Sullivan never knew that.
6: Rodney earned a thousand dollars for his first appearance on Sullivan. When it went well, he was booked more times at fifteen hundred dollars a pop. Here's Joan and comedians Harry Basil and Dennis Blair.
14: For Rodney, it was a very very slow climb. In fact, even when he was doing Sullivan, he was still selling aluminum siding.
12: A customer said to his secretary, uh, Is Mr. Roy in show business? We saw him on the, the Ed Sullivan show the other night. Oh, no, no, he does that on the side.
15: <laughs> on the side. He shows up at this guy's house to do aluminum siding. At about 6 o'clock, he's doing the side, and he says to the guy, Hey, uh, do you mind if I come in and watch the TV for a little while? The guy goes okay he turns on the tv and rodney's on tv and he's watching himself and the guy at the house is standing there and looking at him and look at the tv going what kind of alternate universe am i in the guy who's doing my sighting is on sullivan
6: rodney also established his signature look and manic style of delivery here's rodney stan Irwin, pat cooper and producer george Schlaughter
7: first time I did the Ed Sullivan show. I got dressed and I wore a black suit and a red tie and a white shirt. Then I did well and he brought me back to do another show. What am I going to wear the second time? I thought to myself, I don't know what to wear. I can't figure it out. I wear the same thing. So I got known for, for a red tie and a white shirt and a black suit quite by accident.
9: His mannerisms were individual. I mean, the reaching for the tie. No one else did it because if you did do it, you thought of
15: Dangerfield. He was a fidgety guy. And the sweat was real. The ticks were real. He was constantly pulling, constantly nervous. So that was just part of him that
7: worked for the character. When you talk like Rodney Dangerfield... I'll tell you, I'm all right now, but last week I was in rough shape, you know? Some people, they think you're having a nervous breakdown.
9: But when Rodney, that's his persona.
7: He walked out, and
11: it looked like... Uh, hey, I just came in here. I want to tell you something. And it would look like an accident. Rodney looked like an accident to begin with, right? A poor car accident with no survivors. But it was no accident. He prepared those jokes, the routine of those jokes, the construction of the jokes.
7: Ah, you kidding. Are you kidding? I know I'm ugly. I asked a bartender to make me a zombie. Told me God beat him to it.
4: A classic Rodney Dangerfield joke is, oh, I was ugly. Well, you set it up. I came out. That's the middle. The doctor slapped my mother. You know, it, and it, it reverses right at the end, and it has the meaning, and he loved that type of joke.
7: I'll tell you my wife, she never went for me. Well, the first time I called her up, she told me, come on over, there's nobody home. I went over, there was nobody home.
0: And when we come back, we're going to continue with this remarkable story, a man taking all that pain, all that grief, sublimating it, and turning it into an act, turning it into a living. That line, I couldn't find perfection in relationships. So I tried to find it in work. Really chilling. When we come back, more of the story of Rodney Dangerfield here on Our American Stories. And you're listening to Rodney Dangerfield singing in the movie Back to School and I Can't Help But Laugh. Just one of my top three favorite comedies. And it's because of Rodney. No one else could have done it like him. Let's return to Greg Hengler and the story of Rodney Dangerfield.
6: Armed with a new name, Look and Delivery, Rodney was gaining fans all across America. But his rocket didn't actually launch until he stumbled upon the greatest hook in the history of comedy. Here's comedians Dom Herrera, Robert Townsend, Phyllis Diller, Fred Willard, George Lopez, Brad Garrett, Louis Anderson, and Dennis Blair.
11: It was just perfect. It was the most brilliant hook ever. He tapped
13: into a brand that spoke to everybody in America. He had those wonderful bulging
7: eyes, and the tick, and the great delivery, and of all things, that wonderful line. No respect. I don't got no respect at all. You can-
8: And the audience just cheered. It's like Tony Bennett starting out with, I left my heart in San Francisco.
7: And now, here it comes. This is what we're waiting for. It's the same thing when I was a kid, no respect. The time my old man took me to the zoo, they thanked him for returning me. From a kid who doesn't get to stay out and play longer, or the housewife and mother who works all day. At
15: some point during the day, they go, I don't get no respect. Jack Benny just thought that uh, Rodney had probably the best image there ever was for comedy. Jack Benny came down to Rodney's dressing room once and said, you know, my image is an image of a cheap guy. It's okay. And he said to Rodney, but your image gets into the soul of everybody. Everybody thinks they're
6: not being respected.
14: He knew he was starting to get a a good reaction from the audiences, and he had booked this gig uh, in Long Island with 400 people, and he, he brought his dad to that show. His dad said, you know... I think you've got something. And Rodney never forgot that. And he was so glad that 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 approval came before uh, his father passed.
6: Rodney's hard work was paying off, but there was only one gig guaranteed to land his rocket on the moon. The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Here's comedian Richard Lewis.
9: That five and a half minutes, more people will see you on that monologue than if you played, say, this nightclub here. Three
8: times a day, you know, for like 50 years. So you better treat that six minutes like it's like gold. Johnny Carson got 20 to 25 million viewers a night. The whole country watched the Johnny Carson show. And most importantly, the whole industry watched the Tonight Show. You didn't get on
9: the Tonight Show. (laughs) You weren't happening. You also got into your career there, too and if he uh, said sit down
15: that was the ultimate
6: but to have a chance at a sit down you first had to book the show but that was impossible for Rodney because of a mistake he made years earlier
7: now I tell you I'm all right now but last week I was a rough shape you know
11: he had been at the improv and he wrote a very funny joke and it got a pretty good laugh at the club and yet a few days later it was coming out of Johnny Carson's mouth he was so upset that he wrote a letter to Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson was very upset with the letter, didn't really know Rodney, and he said, well, who is this guy that's saying that I have a thief on the staff? And Johnny did not want to use uh, Rodney for the longest time.
14: A few years later, a couple of the talent bookers uh, came up to him after a performance and said, OK, you got you got to do Johnny's show. And Rodney said, I'd, I'd like to, but you know, he doesn't want me. And they said, oh, he's forgotten about that. He's forgotten about that by now. And so they booked a date, and Rodney was like, oh, so happy, and telling everyone, calling everybody. And then his phone rang, and, well, guess what? Johnny's not over it.
8: One night, Rodney was at the Copacabana, where Tony Bennett was on, in 1969. And Johnny Carson pulled up in a limo with Stan Irwin, his producer, and saw the crowd just trying to get in and decided to give up. Rodney personally set him up with a table for two. Rodney looked at, at Johnny and said, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Johnny said, forget about it, and the next thing you knew... Would you welcome Mr. Rodney Danger. And Rodney became a national institution just from just from how much Johnny liked. I'll
7: tell you, I'll tell you last week was a rough week for me, last week. I saw my kid in a milkman going to a father and son dinner. It was great. Did he come in? Six minutes of all home runs, Rodney
11: was not interested in entertaining an audience. He wanted to pulverize him. He wanted to kill him. Ladies and gentlemen,
7: Rodney Dangerfield. You wanted to leave him on the floor, left. I tell you, I tell you, I'm all right now, but last week I was a rough shape, you know? <laughs> last week I saw my doctor. I told him, doctor, every day I wake up, I look in the mirror, I want to throw up. What's wrong with me? He said, I don't know, but your eyesight is perfect. Well, you should tell me. When you go on the caution show, you gotta do damage. You got to do damage. <laughs> there was a stand-up and there was the panel part. Which can I deliver to Johnny and which do I want to play to the audience with? This was all part of the craft. He just killed Johnny. I mean, Johnny would literally cry and and he was one of the few that could do that in the industry. I'll tell you, all you hear is sex with sex. I had it up to here. Yeah. Not lately, though. You know? <laughs> I
2: don't think I ever saw Johnny Carson laugh as long and as loud as, as when Rodney was next. In.
6: Here's Jeff Ross.
9: Well, those are the best clips, you know, when you see Johnny Carson laughing and he was such a great setup man with uh, Rodney, so
7: they had a fun chemistry. It used to take me three months to prepare a talk show between a stand-up and a panel. I needed 32 new jokes that were all funny, this and that, and and that's how long it would take me to prepare, six or eight minutes.
14: When he um, would write a joke, he would literally write a joke, and he would start maybe with a, with a thought and write that down. And then he'd keep kind of adding to it and reworking it and reworking it.
7: Last week I went to the track, I showed off the opening gun, they killed my
14: horse. Every show that he did on television is handwritten. Mike Douglas, Mer Griffin, Steve Allen, show every show that he did.
6: By 1969 at the age of 48, Rodney's success on Carson made him a national phenomenon. He could now command tens of thousands of dollars in Vegas but he was about to be confronted with an event that would force him to choose between his family and his career. His ex-wife Joyce was suffering with debilitating arthritis and she began drinking heavily to deal with her condition. Here's comedians Harry Basil and Paul Rodriguez. And here he was
12: famous. He was Rodney Dangerfield. And there was a big demand for him to go on the road. The job of a stand-up comic is crowded, so crowded. And just to get a little bit of attention is so difficult. And when you have a little of attention, you want more. You don't just walk away because you got to raise some kids. Who does that? Rodney did. But he decided to open up his own club and put his name on it. Kind of like Ricky Ricardo with the Club Babaloo, you know, just going to work every day and being there for the kids and just going
6: and working at nighttime. Rodney opened Dangerfields on New York's Lower East Side. The comedy club was a success, but it still failed to get him any respect.
11: He said to me, he says, you know, here I am, I got my own club, I'm trying to do well, And, and this woman came up for me, Eddie, and she said... Rodney, could I have your autograph and some more butter?
6: Joyce's condition continued to deteriorate, and she passed away, leaving Rodney, the single father of seven-year-old Melanie and 11-year-old Brian.
12: He had his priorities right, he raised his children once they were adults, once they had a, their, own, uh, their own lives, once his responsibility was over, he went back and became
6: even bigger than he was. The first step after Rodney's return to the world of comedy was a chance meeting with a young director and writer named Harold Ramis, who was about to shoot a low-budget movie called Caddyshack. Here's the director of Caddyshack, Harold Ramis.
10: Our first thought was uh, that maybe Don Rickles should play the part. But at the time, Rodney was had an amazing run on The Tonight Show. He was killing every time, just hysterically funny. And uh, I forgot who first said it, but we said, you know, maybe Rodney's the guy. We didn't know that if he could act, but we thought even if he couldn't act, just being himself would, uh, would work for us.
0: And we know how that worked out. And when we come back, the final installment, the final segment of this terrific story, Rodney Dangerfield story, Here on Our American Story...
7: We got some rough shape. I don't get a break with nothing. When I was born, I brought no joy. No respect, no respect. My old man said he wanted a boy. No respect, no respect. I was an ugly kid, always alone. No respect, no respect. Halloween, I had a trick or treat over the phone. No respect,
0: no respect. This is our American stories, and let's return where we left off. With Rodney getting cast in the low-budget movie Caddyshack, here's director Harold Ramis.
10: So we worked on his first day's shooting, and I said, "All right, action, Rodney, action." He says, "You want me to do the bit?" I said, "Yeah, do the bit." Okay, so he, I mean, he didn't—he he was so raw, he didn't even understand that action was the the signal that, to start. But. Uh, the the punchline to that is, by the end of the shoot, he finished the scene and he came over to me and he said, I guess I'm an actor.
9: The first scene he ever shot, he starts to sweat. I said, oh my God, this guy's going to have a heart attack. I go, you know, so in between takes, I go, Ronnie, are you okay? No, no. He said, what's, what's the matter? I, I suck. I am suck. I'm, I'm, I'm dying out there. I said, what do you mean? Nobody's laughing. Nobody's laughing. I said, Rodney, they can't laugh. Right, because I suck. I said, said, Rodney, they can't laugh
6: because they won't be able to use the soundtrack. So let's dance. Caddyshack was released in 1980 and was a smash hit. But its true success is found in the avid cult following it's developed over the years. Here's Everybody Loves Raymond co-star Brad Garrett.
11: The man's a menace.
6: Most
7: comedians, that's probably one of their top ten movies of all time, and it's it's what we call a road movie. It's something when we get on the bus or get on a plane, we take literally with us and we watch, and it stands up still today. In
6: 1983, at the age of 61, Rodney was asked to play the role of a hard-living derelict and degenerate named Monty Capuletti. Here's the writer for Easy Money, Dennis Blair.
15: This was like the height of his popularity, and he goes, So they want to do a movie starring me. So if you come up with an idea, let me know. So by the next night, I had this idea. Just, you know, a guy has to stop drinking, smoking, and gambling for a year to get $10 million. He thought, that's a good idea.
7: I'm very familiar with him. And there's a part of me that's part of him too, you know? Uh, The idea that uh, a good time is going to the trek and having a few drinks and gambling. That's part of me too, my personal life. It's hard to contain myself. That's where we got the idea for the movie. Comedy comes from tragedy. And that could not be more true about anyone
6: Uh, more than Rodney Dangerfield. He really was a tortured soul who turned it into uh, a lot of jokes and making everyone else laugh. Uh, But he didn't laugh a lot himself. Rodney's next movie was his greatest success and earned him a new generation of fans. Back to School dropped in 1986 and grossed more than $100 million at the box office and became another cult hit with the college kids, a group that would become one of Rodney's most enthusiastic fans. At 65, Rodney had finally climbed to the top of the comedy world. Mindful of his struggles, Rodney used his status and his HBO comedy show to help jumpstart the careers of talented and up-and-coming comedians.
7: I know how tough it is for a comedian, but when he starts, if I see a guy who I think is funny, it's my pleasure to try to move him along. Here, let the people see him. Key. Appreciated. Talent. In this thing called showbiz, he's one of the guys who's coming up real fast. He's and
9: I like that about Rodney Dangerfield. He admired other comics because he loved the art of, of comedy.
7: Robert Townsend has really dying, I don't
4: Rodney had a lot of empathy for comedians, so he knew how difficult it was.
7: Give it up for Robert Schimmel, okay?
4: He genuinely had a daddy motivation where he kind of felt um, the, the need to nurture.
8: I'm gonna hire both of you. Rodney was offered by HBO, a series of stand-up comedy specials where he would bring in stand-up comics and feature them on his HBO specials. He was the doorkeeper. He was able to open doors for guys that he really liked.
7: All right, give it up now for Tim Allen. Okay, here we go. All right, Tim, here we
9: go. Most of the people that were on those shows became superstars.
7: All
11: right.
9: It was a big break for them in show business to be on a show with Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney was responsible for a whole bunch of superstars, Seinfeld, Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey was his opening act, which he was very proud of. Andrew Dice Clay, Roseanne Barr, just all of these people became superstars. Dice was on for seven minutes, and he became an arena act, which meant he was selling out 15,000 seaters based on seven minutes on Rodney's HBO special, which
7: was a phenomena. You're gonna get a kick out of bad Sam, okay, right. Sammy, West, Sammy West. Sam
9: Kinison was uh, rebellious. Uh, Sam was having a tough time in the business because he was different.
7: It just shows how generous he was.
12: Most comics are very threatened by other funny people. He would help us out. Sometimes we would sell him jokes that he'd never used because he knew we needed the money, and and it allowed us to keep our dignity, you know some really uh, bad material. I sold him over the years. (laughs) Just having Rodney know you and think you're funny was like, you
15: know, you carry it with you, like a badge of honor. As a young guy back then, I was like, that was huge for me and for my confidence.
6: After a 10-year courtship, Rodney, the 72-year-old Jew, married the 40-year-old Mormon Joan Child in 1993. His act was selling out all over the country Everyone wanted to see Rodney.
7: What do you say we bust up this joint? Bust a wide open. Are you kidding?
13: My wife and I are at one of Rodney's shows and Jim Carrey opened for him. And, and you know, it's like a comic opening for a rock star. Get the f*** off the stage. Bring out Rodney. We are not f*** you. Get out of. And poor Jim Carrey left the stage in tears. I thought he was going to leave the business.
6: As the 1990s came to a close, Rodney was approaching his 80s and his years of hard living were beginning to catch up with him. On August 24, 2004, Rodney had heart valve replacement surgery. When asked how long he'd be hospitalized, he said, if all goes well, about a week. If not, about an hour and a half.
14: After Rodney's um, final heart surgery, he slipped into a coma and was in the coma for 40 days. They pretty much uh, let me try everything to try to bring him out, and um, and part of that included they gave me permission to bring in um, beyond family other people that had uh, strong emotional connections to him, and I uh, I got on the phone and called a few comics, and they all knew the mission. <laughs> try to say something that maybe Rodney would react to. I heard some of the best material in the world from Jay Leno, Jim Carrey, Adam Sandler, Louis Anderson came almost every day, Bob Saget, Andrew Dice Clay, Roseanne. And
6: we just thought there was, there was hope. You know, I love Here's Jay Leno comic. on The Tonight Show yeah, with Jimmy Fallon.
9: Yeah. I, you know, I'll tell you a great Rodney story. I was pretty close to Rodney, and when Rodney was in the hospital, he was in a coma. And his wife, Joan, God bless her, she was by his side the whole time. And I go to visit Rodney, and we're standing there, and she goes, well, Jay, take Rodney's hand. So I take Rodney's hand, and she says, Rodney, if you know Jay's here squeeze his finger. Okay, so I feel my finger get squeezed. And then I lean, I said to Rodney, Rodney, that's not my
13: finger. Uh, <laughs> so,
1: so, so, and, and, and
13: Rodney. <laughs> <laughs> and I could see Rodney kind of, you know, he just, you know, and I felt good. Oh, cool. I made, check, I made one yeah. of my favorite guys laugh. <laughs> He's the girl, and, oh, yeah.
6: On October 5th, 2004, at 1.20 p.m., Rodney Dangerfield passed away at 82. A funeral was held for him a few days later.
7: What a crowd, what a crowd. The other day I told my kid, I said, Someday you'll have children of your own. He said, So are you. <laughs> well, last week my house was on fire. My wife told the kids, Be quiet, you wake up daddy.
8: Rodney is the only comic I can think of where guys get together and they'd all start quoting jokes of his you know my family during the civil war they fought for the west
9: my wife she's a lousy cook Uh, at my house we pray after we eat (laughs) (laughs) i I, I miss rodney god it's tough not to i don't think he really believed he was that good but the audience said yes you're wonderful and
14: he was and uh, that's it
9: and, you know, he always said, hey, you got no respect, you know, no respect. And in, in reality, he, all he did was get respect.
14: I just wish that everyone had the chance that I had to spend so much time with him and to um, see his humanity and his generous spirit. I was the luckiest girl in the world.
7: Like everyone else in this thing called showbiz... I like applause, but I'll tell you there's something to me that's more important than applause. Maybe nothing to you, but a lot to me. It's just when I walk off, if if you're all just give me one of these.
6: One of these is Rodney holding up the okay sign. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is our American Stories.
0: And great work as always, Greg. And his bride said it best, his humanity, his generosity. We were all lucky to know Rodney, that he shared his pain so honestly with us, made us all laugh about our own pain. He did what Arthur Miller said, all art should do. And that's make us all feel less alone. And Rodney did that. Rodney Dangerfield's story, here on Our American Story.
1: at and- the